Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. What are we talking about today, Fred? Well, today is the right word there, Chris. Today, the day we're recording this is December 7th, which when we've First sat down and I'm taking notes of what we want to talk about today and all that stuff. I was like, you know, today's December 7th. I know that number. And you're like, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. And I'm like, oh, I, it's Pearl Harbor Day. It was uh, the day that the U.S. got pulled in by, into the Second World War in the Pacific. The, Japan attacked the, the uh, naval base in Hawaii at a place called Pearl Harbor um, did a surprise attack and destroyed a bunch of stuff and killed a lot of people. Um, and so the U.S. got into Second World War. And then right away, then you said, you know, there's been a lot of uh, reliability stuff that happened as a result of that war. I'm like, mm-hmm. huh, I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> but you're right. It's all kinds of stuff. So what came up to you? And that's when I said, oh, we got to hit record. And so what? What prompted that thought that the the war ended up being a boon for reliability? Well, I mean, the first thing that springs to mind is is the Japanese economic miracle, which is a term used to describe the emergence of Japan after World War II as a manufacturing powerhouse with their products synonymous with high quality, but also not in many cases cheaper than other products manufactured across the world, especially by uh, countries who identify as Western, which means they usually think they're better than the rest of the world anyway. So all of a sudden you had uh, Japanese products leading the world in terms of um, uh, you know, manufacturing quantities, manufacturing costs, and also reliability and quality. There's a really, uh, actually on YouTube, I think it's a NBC documentary from the early 1980s you can see it it's it's uh it's a youtube video lasts about an hour and i argue that every single thing they touch on is 100 applicable to um, manufacturing and design as of today but um why did the japanese economic miracle happen largely because after world war ii the government ceased being a government in the way we traditionally look at governments elected by the people for the people so on and so forth because you had our western forces or western countries essentially installing a, an administration where of course they weren't caught up in uh, they weren't caught up in uh, you know, let's call it cult uh, political traditions at the t- at the time so they essentially created a fully technocratic government where the ministers or the secretaries of whatever departments or whatever term your country uses to describe who's in charge of what bureaucratic or public service, uh, as opposed to them being essentially government elected officials, these were the people best suited for the jobs. Um, And you would have this amazing thing where the government, the Japanese government was working with industry as opposed to trying to simply regulate industry or legislate industry. They were actually trying to invest in and provide guidance. They weren't worried about liability or things like that. They were focused on how do I work, how do we work with industry to uh, 
to make things better. Of course, well, it wasn't just to make things better. It was the the industry base in Japan was pretty much decimated, and agriculture and everything else. Now you got this population that you need to keep, you need to feed and build houses and build apartments and create the materials to do all that stuff. So these folks kind of got themselves organized with this technocratic approach and saying, well, how do we feed this population? Well, we got to improve our agricultural yield. We got to improve our factory and, and our logistics trains and our warehousing. Oh, we need to build warehousing. We need steel, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. So let's just go get it done. And I think the what you described is they were working together to make it happen. And um, right. Don't forget, at the time, geopolitically, uh, there was a big fear between Western communist forces. And so J- Japan was being engineered as a sort of buffer between communist forces on on, on um, the Asian mainland versus the rest of the world, whether you buy into the reality of that threat or not. But And so there was plenty of funds as well. And so there's plenty of incentive from those governments to not only do what you did, Fred, I uh, talked about Fred, but, you know, employ these people, feed these people, engage these people. But they wanted the country to succeed big time because if they could, it turns out in a way to have been proven true since, they now have an ally, ally which is one one additional buffer between the perceived threat of those of the communist forces. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a few things at play. But uh, I think the long story short is the technocratic nature that people weren't necessarily interested in winning government you couldn't really win government at the time because people were installed um and so it was just that's get on with the job which is a refreshing approach and unusual approach feel about yeah yeah and not under the best of circumstances i, I don't no. think we want to go through and destroy a country and then and then say oh it'll be great no, no it's kind of a harsh way to make improvements there's other ways to go about doing it. You know, some of the other things I think of that came out of this is that because of the the technology advances of the war fighting process of everything from radio radios or radar to security systems and 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 encryption systems, all kinds of technology mm-hmm. was in, either invented or greatly accelerated. And at some point they, they said, you know, we can make a lot of airplanes it would be nice if they actually flew more than one mission. <laughs> so let's make them so that they actually work. And because then it's cheaper to fix an airplane in the field than it is to build a new one and ship it out to you for every day. So let's actually make these things start to work. And and so the concept of reliability as a manufactured product is one of the requirements of it. While always in existence, I think the cabinet makers in the 1600s, some of which their cabinets are still in use today. They're just beautiful works of art and functionally doing the exact same thing they did way back when, holding socks in their drawer. But it, it they were crafted to last. And that right. was part of the reputation of the early craftsmen. Well, as we've been in their mass production, the craftsman was gone. It was how many rivets per hour can you put in? And so then it became obvious from an economic point of view that, oh, we need to actually make it reliable too. And so the the so as far as I can tell, the four-part definition of reliability was in a mill standard and it, mm-hmm. from the 1950s timeframe. 
and they said, all right, here's the, here's the definition of reliability. Here's how we're going to measure it. And I still haven't figured out how and why MTBF became so predominant because the early documents didn't mention it at all. But it, the reliability type stuff was, no, this is important. We actually have to make this a specification. If we're going to make it a specification, we've got to be able to measure it. And here's our techniques. And it started to become part of the military standards systems for procurement, for design, for data tracking, all kinds of stuff. And mil, the mill standards were the go-to set of documents for pretty much everything in, until what the eighties when they said, oh, stop that. We're going to industry. You do your own thing. Stop mooching off of us. Well, it'd be wrong to suggest that reliability, the only thing World War II had to do with reliability was a Japanese economic miracle. And what you're talking about was, uh, I think, born out of a lot of the ele emerging electronics stuff. Yep. You know, yep. all the radars and stuff that came out of that, you know, in, into fruition during World War II. Um, so I believe a lot of the early documents are about electronic component reliability um, more than anything else. Um well, there was there was that, but it was also procurement stuff for systems, and it might be an electronic box or electromechanical box. Um, machine guns had reliability um, requirements put on them. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it, it became a conscious effort to document this stuff and to measure it and to make it a specification that they could hold people to. And then they had, you know, the parts count stuff came around and got really popular late 50s, early 60s. But at the same time, the physics of failure, what we call physics of failure now, was also doing really, really well. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of work at very fundamental levels of how things worked and didn't work and then and creating very elaborate models to that. The trouble was is that they were primarily doing all this work and calculation with slide rules and log tables. And so it took a long time. Right. And parts count was quick. The other thing is, I, I not too many people know this, but you can find it. There was a there is a Fermika standard that NASA did created, um, which wow. predated anything the military did. Yep, it's all wow. in a very space centric, obviously. And mm -hmm. the thing about Fermikas is, I would argue that using failure rates as a general rule or general idea at the start of any design process to try and find corrective actions. If you know what you're doing, can be okay because you're just trying to do a quick down and dirty. Which are the things that are going to fail more often than not? Okay, failure rates can be used for that, but um, but then that might have led led on led to this sort of mass indoctrination. Okay, Fermikas started to emerge. They all use failure rates. Uh, that's reliability. Done. Um, that's that's a theory I have. I can't prove it, and I can't suggest it's true. But I think it's interest interesting that it's sort of comes out that NASA standard comes out roughly the same time that you're talking about where we start to see parts count predictions and things like that coming into play as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, there's all kinds of other issues with that line of reasoning up to today where safety regulations in Europe are using parts count, you know, like, Oh, oh no, it's five steps backwards there. But uh, the idea is that there was, um, standards were being created and in doc in and processes like FMEA and uh, block diagrams and modeling uh, of failure mechanisms, doing root cause analysis to understand how it failed and getting into the science of it. A lot of that stuff really took shape 
because of the militaries and the, and mm -hmm. the coming out of World War II, it was you know working with Japan and with Germany and 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 just trying to do whatever they were doing. But they were the big game in town. It wasn't until years and years later that personal computers and the auto industries became such big deals that they created their own set of standards, did their own types right, of things. Right. But they were basically using that same military model. You know, if you're going to do an FMEA, here is the steps according to the standard, and I can use that in a contract and I can hold you to it and and, and so on and so on. A lot of that came out of the out of, as a result of uh, the focus on reliability during World War II. And, and mm -hmm. I don't know that it would have and it it was reinforced in the 70s and 80s with Japan going, you know, we make really good cars. <laughs> and they're yep. cheap. And they work and they, they still work, you know, kind of thing. My mom, my uh, grandmother had a, a Toyota uh Camry, I think it was one of the very first models that got sold in the States. She had it for 40 years. Right. <laughs> Changed the oil. That's all she ever did. Put new tires on it once in a while. That's and that's sort of how it worked. I mean, when the Japanese vehicle was started to be imported across the world, um, that's when stuff got real. That's when the, all the other auto manufacturers went, "Oh, we have a problem here. Yeah. We our cars just aren't as reliable as that." And it's to to an extent that's just still plays out today. Good luck trying to make money off a Honda or, or Toyota uh, service center. Service center, yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. There is, and um, Consumer Reports came out with their annual auto rankings and stuff like that. And once again, GM, as a make uh, auto manufacturer, is pretty much dead last. I think Tesla is competing with them for being least reliable. Um, right. But Toyota and the other Japanese makers, uh, a couple of the German ones are in the top 10. It, they right. just year after year after year. And part of it is, is that yeah, we. I often point back to Deming, saying, "Well, no, you reduce variability. You know, reduce the variation of your manufacturing process. And good is when it's perfect. It's not when it's in spec. It's you always continuously improve. And that's evolved and been expanded greatly with the the Toyota Toyota manufacturing process, or what do they call it? Toyota Production uh, System TPS. TPS, um, where it's the focus is, well, you know, these statisticians that taught us how to do this way back when we're onto something there, <laughs> you know, it's right. The attitude is it's good when it's perfect and always work to do that. Every improvement makes an improvement. And it's uh, contrary to, and I see it here in the States all the time. Well, it's in spec. Don't worry about it. Right. But I mean that that makes people roll their eyes and say, "Okay, so we never we're never good enough. We have to keep spending money. We have to keep spending money. We have to keep spending money until we you you statisticians are happy that you know we're we're there." You got it. That's <laughs> not the point. Now the idea is that you certainly you can't do that. You have to prioritize. You have to focus on the vital few. Um, you, certainly times where you go, you know what, we don't work anymore on this. On this issue, because we have arrived, so to speak, um, there's plenty of scenarios where, if you if you want if you, if you want to 
take it to the nth degree. Yes, you could create an argument where you'll always be losing money. Got it. But that's not the point. The point is um, there is money to be made by improving quality. If you improve the quality of, of, of components, then those are the products which are going to surprisingly last the entire warranty period. They're the ones that are going to have going to have, I should say, fewer problems that cause you to spend money later on. They're the problem, mm -hmm. they're the products which, you know, generate the most profit uh on on your for each program, so on and so forth. So it's it, it's a, there's a bit of a science to it as apart from the philosophy of just make it right the first time, which is good philosophy to have. But uh yeah, there, there has to be a nuance in that message. The Toyota production system, which has been often tried to be copied, is it's more of a philosophy than anything else. It's just yeah. it's it's not the yes it involves statistical process control, but at the very top, it's got principles and hey, this is what we're trying to achieve in principle. And a lot, a lot of organizations really struggle with that. They try and say, well, what, what's the number that tells me if we're good or not? Well, there is a number. Okay, cool. So on and so forth. And I think it also, this could be a bigger topic too, is that we talk about technocratic societies. Um, <laughs> in Australia, we've just recently had a major telecommunications company have suffered a massive outage due to a software upgrade. Yeah. And of course, the Oops. CEO <laughs> has since fallen on her sword. But the new CEO looks is going to be potentially front runner is a former premier for the state. So broadly analogous to a governor in the state in the United States. You go, mm -hmm. where are the telecommunication experts? Where are they? You have what uh, you see this more and more in, in, in commercial organizations, especially the big corporate ones, where the people in charge, their professional background is more or less all about being in charge. Oh, this person would be an excellent board member. They've sat on 35 boards. Um, they haven't, they use a mobile phone or a cell phone, but they haven't ever been involved in designing a, a cell phone or a mobile phone. You just know it's a matter of time before that, that, that company is going to have a similar issue again. All the look at the Apples and the Microsofts. You have the dude or dudettes in charge come from a background where they know how to make the stuff. Um, and so you see these emerging corporate behemoths, which are more bu bureaucratic than anything else, where technical skills and tech, uh, there's no, uh, there's more the meritocracy is not based on technical merit. So it's not a, technocratic society anymore within that organization it's more about who looks good in a suit and who can chair the board of directors and blah 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 you just know it's a matter of time uh, for that issue to then re-emerge its way yeah same thing happened at nasa yeah no i i get that it, and i've run into it a number of times and it's the there's a role for people that are really good with the financial systems and and the mba backgrounds and skills Yet, it doesn't necessarily mean you can run a technical company. <laughs> it's and and you know, and I I don't know where that came from and how that really it's, it's a whole other topic. Um, but the 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 idea of and I and I came up with another example though out of World War II that's kind of contrary is the, the Russian or the Soviet Union. I I don't know if that would be classified a technocratic. It was essentially, you know, we're going to make this much wheat, we're going to pay you this much and everything else. Was that where it fell into that there was people that wanted to be in charge 
were running the agricultural process or did they actually have good technical solid people in those areas i think it was a bit of both i mean let's not forget how, how close world war ii russia was <laughs> was to being taken i mean they, they got as far as moscow and yes uh there were but there were some inner machinations that were you know it, it wasn't it wasn't good <laughs> No, it wasn't good. It wasn't good at all. No, and I agree with that. And I'm I'm just thinking afterwards, they ended up in the space race. They had ended up on a good industrial footing. Um, I think we talked about it in a previous podcast. They made a really bad version of the Concord uh, supersonic Mm -hmm. aircraft. Um, Some of it's politics. I can understand. Some of it is people in charge not doing what they need to be doing. Um, But they ended up being a world power. Um, for good or for ill, history will tell us one way or the other. I imagine whoever wins the history, I guess. But the the advances uh, across all kinds of fields was phenomenal. Now, my military history says it was paled in comparison to the technical advances from the U.S. Civil War. The the amount of technical advances um, were amazing in the mid 1800s because of that war and all kinds of yeah. things, but that might be another topic altogether. Well, you know, the, the Chinese invented gunpowder well before everybody else knew anything about it. So oh, yeah, and the Swedes got to use it really well. <laughs> Ended up with a Nobel prize. <laughs> and then so much doing that. and not many people realize that about a third of today's vaccines were essentially direct products, direct efforts associated with world war two. And I realized this, malaria and dengue fever and all that yellow fever and all that sort of stuff was if you could vaccinate your troops that in many cases would guarantee victory because it's because the other side would be losing yeah right due to illness yeah i heard that so many things where people died of diarrhea than they did of of, uh, cholera or stuff like that in war than and then in battle but um right it's and then there's medicine as well they you know, Civil War, they they realized just uh, up until that point in time, they thought that, you know, introducing dirt and grime to wounds was a good way of sort of, I don't know, making it robust or whatever. And they realized, you know what? One of the best things you can do is just get get a wound and just flush it with water, as clean a yeah, water as you can possibly clean. get. Keep it, keep yep. it clean. So yeah. there's lots of stuff that, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it, war, war is terrible, to be clear, but it's also... It also spurns, you know, stories and Hollywood epics, but also that's another event of, t- of it creates great need and, mm-hmm. and that it spurs uh, innovation. If only in our organizations we work with that we have get this idea that we should we should really make a reliable product, you know, in and among doing all the other stuff it's supposed to do, but let's make it actually do it over time, and that might create some innovation within the company. That's our hope, right? Product. Well, so if you want to win the war, so to speak, and you know, the war in the commercial space is often the marketplace, or yeah, yeah, customer expectation. So, yeah, I mean, but I think World War Two it was also the thing that happened during the Civil War too is, is you had smack bang in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, and yeah. so that's where mass production as a thing was starting. Off. We can possibly do that, and. Yeah, so I mean, wars have sp- have spurned, spurned, spurred all manners of great achievements and heroic deeds, but also technological advancements for 
both good and ill. Um, yeah. There's a whole, whole other debate to be had. Yeah. So anyway, happy, well, I don't think it's the appropriate phrase for Pearl Harbor Day, but the, that, the date mm-hmm. came across my head here and gone, hmm, I think that date's important. And we spawned off in a whole other, spurred off, whatever that term is, a uh, whole discussion on it. Um, now, I think there's some more. Uh spin-offs from the, from the Second World War affected reliability. And I imagine that, that we can get a couple of comments on that. So if you're listening to this and you thought, well, well, you didn't mention this part or you didn't mention this part, you know, let us know. How did the mm-hmm. last, what, almost 100, was it 80 years now? 100 years? Get 80 years. Um, wow. Give or take. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, We've done a lot of advancements in reliability, all kinds of different techniques and lots of different papers are written. And there's yet some of this stuff has been around a long, long time. Uh, and it had to start somewhere. And so we're suggesting or making the hypothesis that the, uh, the Second World War created a lot of impetus to improve reliability. And in some organizations, they get that and it's important and here's why and so on and others they don't. But let us know, what we miss? And what, what, what's your thought on some of the, the role of history of reliability? We'd like to know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR and you can find a couple of ways to get in touch. Chris and I are available through LinkedIn and the about pages on Ascendo. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us. And with that, I'm going to sign off with the memory of uh, Pearl Harbor Day and the, all the, the naval folks and Air Force people that lost their lives that day. Sorry mm-hmm. to, that that happened. But, uh, lest we forget. Lest we forget, right? So uh, we'll leave it with that. We'll, I'll talk to you again soon, Chris. Take care. Always a pleasure, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show please let us know you can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on itunes